Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Joy Gruitz. Good morning, everyone. Hasn't it been a great way to start out the new year as we've done, as Dave said, prayer and fasting. It's created such a passion for the Lord, a renewed passion. And even as each Sunday we've been looking at one thing, one thing that we can embrace that can strengthen our faith and continue to stoke or kindle that passion for the Lord. Now, just about two weeks before Thanksgiving, I had the opportunity, Joe and I actually, had the opportunity to attend a holiday luncheon. And among those at our table were Abdu and Nicole Murray. And as you know, uh, they have an apologetic ministry called Embrace the Truth. And during the course of that luncheon, we were sharing about our Thanksgiving dinner. You know, those family dishes that uh, that we serve that are special, that go along with all the turkey and the mashed potatoes. And so Abdu, in the course of the conversation, he pulls out his iPhone and he shows us a picture of the Thanksgiving dinner that his parents had prepared the year before. And I'm telling you, what we saw was a huge kitchen island. And on that kitchen island were pans and platters of food that filled every single inch. And then Abdu says, you know, the feast of what his parents had prepared was so plentiful that the turkey kind of seemed like a side dish. (laughs) You see, what he was demonstrating was the Middle Eastern way of showing hospitality. That the way that you show your love and the way you honor your guests is to prepare this beautiful feast. And even when I was talking to um, Nicole this past week, she was saying that even in Middle Eastern homes of modest means, they will take the simplest of ingredients and just prepare it in a beautiful way because it's all about honoring your guests. So I imagine that 2,000 years ago, there was this Middle Eastern woman named Martha. And she had this same desire to show her hospitality, to express her love and the way she wanted to honor Jesus because he had come to her house for dinner. Now, Martha has a sister named Mary and a brother named Lazarus. And although they're not part of that inner group we call the 12 disciples, they certainly were disciples of Christ. In fact, they were his dear friends. And so Jesus has come to her house for dinner. But Martha is just frantic with all the details of preparing this guest-honoring meal. I don't know what she was preparing. I imagine hummus was involved and maybe lentil soup, some pita bread. But we do know that she was so busy that she needed help. And specifically, she wanted her sister's help. But where is Mary? Look at Luke 10, 39. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. So here is Mary, and what does she see? Jesus is teaching, Mary's sitting, and she's doing all the work. And so I think there was a bit of stomp in her step, a little bit complaint in her voice when she went up to Jesus, and this was her appeal. uh, Verse 40 in Luke says, Lord, 
doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Kind of sounds familiar, right? <laughs> Tell her to come and help me. But Jesus doesn't respond in the way that Martha expected. Instead of saying, Mary, get up and go help your sister in the kitchen, Instead, he lovingly chides her and says this, Dear, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset about all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it. I love that. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. The Message Bible says, One thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. You see, it wasn't that Martha's desire to honor Jesus with this beautiful meal was a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. The problem was this good thing was taking precedence over the essential thing. This one thing that was essential to sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught by his words. You see, Jesus was in her house, but she was in the kitchen. You see, while she was consumed with cooking all of these things to honor Jesus, which was a good thing, I wonder what profound teaching she was missing out on. What life-changing, life-transforming, life-influencing truth she missed out on because she chose to do a good thing instead of the one thing that was essential. But Mary made a different choice. Mary chose to put aside all of the cultural expectations of the day, which was to be in that kitchen. And she chose to be a disciple to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to really consider this posture of Mary. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. You see, in those days, Jesus was considered a rabbi, a teacher, and a rabbi had disciples. And whenever a rabbi would teach, his disciples would sit at his feet. You see, by sitting at his feet, it wasn't just so she could, you know, hear him better or engage in a conversation. No, she was taking on the posture of a disciple whose desire was to do this one thing, to hear the truths that he had to teach. So how do we... Follow the example of Mary. How do we choose to sit at Jesus' feet? Because we can't do it like Mary did. We can't physically sit at his feet. We can't hear the words the way that Mary heard those words. So how do we sit at the feet of Jesus? How do we make that essential choice? Well, we choose to sit at the feet of Jesus when we make the choice to read and embrace the Word of God. This book of books that we call the Scriptures, we refer to it as the Word of God. You see, this book contains the inspired words of God through which He speaks to us. You see, on the night before Jesus was crucified, He revealed to His 12 disciples how the ministry that they were so familiar with was coming to an end. But he made them this promise. He said that God the Father was going to send them a teacher, send them a helper. And so this is what we read in John 14. 
but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, the Holy Spirit was going to help them remember everything Jesus said, everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus did so it could be documented in what we now know as the New Testament. You see, he would be their helper. He would also help the apostles by teaching them those truths that they would write in the letters to the churches, all that is documented in what we know as the New Testament. But you see, the Holy Spirit didn't just inspire these New Testament writers. Look what Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture, not just scripture that would be recorded in the New Testament, but all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And this word inspiration has at its root the word breath. So when Paul writes, all scripture is by the inspiration of God, he is saying all scripture is God-breathed, breathed by the Holy Spirit. It was as if the Holy Spirit breathed on the hearts and minds of the writers of, of there had to be like 40 writers. He, he just breathed on their hearts and their minds, compelling them to write down, to give form to that divine inspiration. You see, and it is through that inspiration that has been documented in what we call the Bible that the Lord speaks to us today. You know, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, we read this important truth about the Word of God. Look what it says in verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Scriptures... What we read in this book of books, these scriptures are to be a lamp and a light that guide us through our lives. Now the Apostle Paul builds on this truth when he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, Timothy, you have been taught the scriptures from a childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is reminding Timothy how the scriptures were the lamp and that light that revealed to him the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, and that continues to be the essential purpose of the scriptures today. That is the thread that is woven through every book of the Bible, that Jesus is our Savior. That's the essential purpose of the scriptures. But then... Paul says there's more. Look at verse 16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, the scriptures, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You see, the scriptures have been given to us not only to illuminate, to shed on our hearts this truth that Jesus is our Savior, but it also has been given to us so that we can know what truth is, unchangeable, eternal truth, not the kind of truth that is defined by our culture today that is changeable and subjective and based on human preferences. 
No, the word of God is to be that lamp and that light that illuminates a standard of truth by which we are to live our lives. And when we turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, we are provided with yet another powerful metaphor for the scriptures. Not only a lamp and a light, but a sword. Look what it says in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and of, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the Bible, this book of books, isn't just meant to be an ancient historical text that gets dusty on a bookshelf. The word of God is meant to be read and studied and embraced so that the truth of God's word becomes active and alive on our hearts. You see, like a sword revealing to us what needs to be cut away, cutting away those justifications and excuses that we have. It's to be that sword that reveals to us our wrong intentions, our wrong desires, that exposes our wrong attitudes and behaviors. See, his words are to be alive and active, teaching us what is right and revealing to us what is wrong and preparing and equipping us to do every good work. Then Paul says in Ephesians 6 that God's word can be a powerful sword to help us stand firm in our faith. Not only to perfect us and to teach us, but allow us to stand firm in our faith. Ephesians 6, Paul says this, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And then Paul goes on in this passage and he begins to tell us what that spiritual armor is. How there is a helmet of salvation, there's the breastplate of righteousness, and he goes on and describes this spiritual armor. But then he ends it up by saying this in verse 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. You see, we can use the word of God, these God-breathed scriptures as a sword to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And that exactly, that is exactly what we see Jesus doing after he has been led by the Holy Spirit into a wilderness place for 40 days. For 40 days he is fasting and praying, not just five days of fasting, we're talking about 40 days of fasting. And I believe that Satan is, is believing that this would be the opportune time to try to tempt Jesus in some way, make him trip up so that Satan could thwart God's plan to redeem mankind. That he would try to do what he did to Adam and Eve. And so Satan begins with his first strategy. He's going to tempt Jesus by appealing to his flesh. Look what he says in Luke 4. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. In other words, saying, Jesus, you are hungry. You're hungry. So prove to me who you are. Prove to me you are the son of God by doing a little miracle here. Take this stone and make it bread. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't engage in any conversation or debate. Instead, you know what he does? He uses the sword. 
he cites Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. But Satan doesn't give up. He just changed his attack. He says in verse 5, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world, all their authority, all their glory if you worship me. You know what? I will give you all authority here on earth, all these kingdoms, and you don't even have to go through all that suffering. You just, you just worship me, and I'll give it all to you. But again, Jesus uses the sword. From Deuteronomy 6.13, Jesus says, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Satan, unwilling to give up, takes Jesus to the very top of the temple in Jerusalem. And again, he challenges Jesus, prove your identity. Prove who you are. In verse 9, he says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And Satan ups the ante. And he uses a scripture. He says, for the scriptures say, he, the father, will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even, um, you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Come on, Jesus. Prove to me who you are. Prove you are the son of God. You throw yourself down, the father's going to keep you from being harmed. But again, Jesus doesn't take the bait Instead, he uses the sword of the scripture and he says, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Can't you just envision this verbal sword fight that leaves Satan defeated? Now, when Jesus walked this earth, the scriptures that he used as a sword are what we refer to now as the Old Testament because the New Testament was being written with his life and would be written with the ministry of the apostles as they established his church here on earth. But you see, we have this added blessing that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that we have, contains scriptures not just of the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. We have a powerful sword of the Spirit that we can use to defend off any strategies of the devil to stand firm in our faith. So that we, we are confronted with feelings of doubt or despair or anxiety or worry when we're faced with temptations that would threaten to overwhelm us or when those trials of life, those wrecked expectations start to shake our faith, we can use the sword of the word. But here's the thing, to use the sword, you have to know the sword. You have to know the word. You have to know the scriptures and you have to know them in context so you can use them effectively. And so we have to make that essential choice to open up the Bible, allow the Lord to speak to us through these divinely inspired words. Reading and studying the word of God must be that essential choice that we make. It must be a top priority in our lives. Now last summer, if you remember, we did a whole series called Sermon on the Mount. Anybody here for the Sermon on the Mount last year? <clears throat> well, last August, I was given the part of that sermon where Jesus says, beware of false prophets. And it was a message about how we need to be alert and aware of those spiritual leaders who would teach, preach, and profess what is false rather than what is true. 
And so part of that message, if you remember, just as I was beginning to talk about how we can use the word of God to know what is true and know what is false, I fainted. Anybody here for that? Not exactly my best moment. (laughs) So as I was preparing this message about the word of God, can you imagine what thought was attacking me? What was starting to create worry and anxiety? Joy, you fainted once. You could faint again. Yeah. But you see, because I know the word of God, says in Philippians this powerful word. It says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. I figured even if I fainted again, he'd get me up and I'd finish the message. And and even as I was fine tuning this message this past week, and that thought came again. The Lord was so good. He dropped this word of scripture that I have known for years, and this is what it is. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. (laughs) You see, that is how we can use the sword of God's word, because where does the enemy of the soul want to attack us first in the mind? right? To discourage us, create anxiety, to try to defeat us and trip us up. This is why the powerful word of God is a sword. It is such a gift to us, but you've got to open the gift. Now, in the 1980s, this puzzle called the Rubik's Cube was very popular, right? Well, Joe was given this Rubik's Cube, or at least one like it, um, for a birthday gift, but the gift giver decided to give it to him all scrambled up because they just know that Joe really has a gift of being a problem solver. There's hardly anything he cannot fix. So they figured, why not up the ante and make it a little bit harder? Well, I was pretty certain that he would be able to figure this out. And so I would watch him twist and turn this puzzle and he would get so close. Almost all the sides would be solid, but inevitably there'd be like one or two rogue squares on the wrong side. Well, one day I was out shopping and I came across, uh, went by a bookstore and there front and center was this book called The Solution, The Simple Solution to the Rubik's Cube. And so I picked it up and I leafed through it and the first thing I noticed is that it told how this puzzle was put together. It gave some interesting facts like there are 43 quintillion moves that you can make in solving this puzzle. No wonder it's a little bit of a problem, right? And then also the most important part of the book is that it gave um, strategies of how to solve the puzzle. It gave some step-by-step things that you would do, like moves to make, moves not to make. So I bought the book, gave it to Joe, and then I watched. I watched him with the book in one hand and the cube in the other, and I'd see him read it and then twist it, read it, twist it, And before long, he could solve the puzzle. Yeah, kudos to him, right? (laughs) But here's the thing. This book has been in my house for years, decades. If you look at it really close, it's a little yellow. The thing is, 
I have never solved this Rubik's Cube. <laughs> I have twisted it, I have turned it, but I've never solved it. You know why? The book was in my house, but I never, I, I scanned it, I kinda knew what was in it, knew some things in it, but I never took it like Joe did and read it and applied it. You see, life, you like that one, right? <laughs> See, I think many of us can relate to the fact that living this life has a lot of twists and turns. That there probably are 43 quintillion decisions that we have to make through life. And although this analogy is not perfect, I think we can relate to it. You see, God has given us a guidebook that's meant to be a lamp and a light and a sword to perfect us and to empower us but church, we need to get out of the kitchen and we make the intentional choice to sit at his feet and allow the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Amen. To not just glance through the scriptures, but really read those scriptures. Study those scriptures and say, Lord, how do I apply them to my life? But I know reading the Bible can be challenging. If you're new to reading the Bible, it can almost seem intimidating. I know that there are deep and complex truths that are in the scriptures. I know there are some things that are hard to wrap your mind around. I know there are some written in historical context that are difficult to grasp. And so in my remaining time this morning, if you are patient with me, I'd like to share with you some ways that you can meaningfully read the scriptures. Are you ready? First of all, you have to choose a translation that you're going to read. If you don't know Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, if you're not fluent in those languages, you're reading a translation. And there isn't just one way that you can translate from one language to another. So you have to choose a way or method of translating, and so that's what Bible translators have done. So if you choose to read the New King James Version, or what's called the English Standard Version, that's called a literal or formal translation. In other words, the translators are going to try to translate, let's say, Greek to English, word for word. They're going to try to keep as close to the original sentence structure as possible. And the difficulty sometimes with this type of translation is that it's a little more difficult for us to read today but still they are good translations. Here is James 1.19 in a literal translation. So then beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Then there's what's called the dynamic translation. This is where the translators try to do it thought for thought or meaning for meaning, putting the words together, what's the thought? And the goal in a tr uh, dynamic translation such as the NIV, New International Version, New Living Translation, and the NRSV, is that they're attempting to find equivalent words and idioms and structures to make the scripture reading more accessible to modern readers. Then there's what's called, oh, let's do the scripture. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Then there's the free translation. This is a paraphrasing of the scriptures, such as you have with the Living Bible and the Message Bible. 
Now, these Bibles or these translations are not meant to be studied to establish doctrine, but rather they're a retelling of the scriptures in modern language and current idioms to try to make the Bible more relatable to modern readers. Here it is in the Message Bible. Post this at all intersections, dear friends. Lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, and let anger straggle along in the rear. A great resource if you want to look at all the different translations is BibleGateway.com. So number one, you're going to have to choose a translation, but know what kind of translation you are reading. Number two, plan on how you're going to read the Bible. Where are you going to start? If you're new to reading the Bible, do not start with the book of Revelation or the book of Leviticus. You want to start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, because they tell you all about Jesus. Then you can also go to a website like YouVersion where you can choose from a variety of Bible plans. And here's the website. So you have your translation. You know where you're going to start reading. Now you have to plan, when am I going to read? Make an appointment with yourself. Schedule it. Am I going to read in the morning? Going to read during my lunch? Am I going to read in the evening? You say, I don't know if I could commit to reading every day. Then commit to reading once, twice a week. Start somewhere. But plan. Number three, or number four, as you sit down to read, pray before you read. Ask the Holy Spirit. Be prayerful as you read. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. And remember this. It is not about how much you read at one setting, but rather it's about taking in what you are reading. It's not about how fast you can read through the Bible, but rather how the Bible, the truths of the Bible are getting through to you. It's prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit, just illuminate what I am reading so that it becomes truth to me. You can ask yourself some questions as you read, what, is, what truth is God trying to teach me? How do I apply this to my life? Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because he will be your teacher. You may be reading a verse of scripture and suddenly it just pops off the page or it stirs your heart. It may even be a, a word within a verse of scripture. And when that happens, take note. That's the time to kind of stop and do the next step dig a little deeper. You see, sometimes it's so helpful to go and look at some of the research tools that are out there for us. You know, there's Bible Hub, and this is a great website. It has commentaries and it has concordances. It even shows you where else in the scriptures you can find a verse of scripture that's similar. But take some time, instead of reading on, take some time and dig a little deeper. And then, write down what you are learning. Now, I know some of you say, I'm not a journaler, Joy. As soon as I say, say write down, you're thinking, I don't know. Maybe you don't write it down on a notepad or you don't journal it, but maybe you pick out your phone, put out your note app, and you dictate. You do an audio note. But it's important to document what the Holy Spirit is teaching you, what you are learning, and then, Share what you're learning. Talk about it. Let someone else know what the Holy Spirit is teaching. And sometimes it may be, I have a question. I don't understand this. Can you help me? So it's important that we share what we learn, what the Lord is speaking to us through the scriptures. So now as the worship team comes, 
I think it's important for us to remind ourselves the importance of the scriptures being that lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and that powerful sword of truth. Again, church, I want to say it's time for us to get out of the kitchen and make this choice to sit at the feet of Jesus. You see, doing good things is important. And I'm not saying stop doing the good things that the Lord has you doing, but don't forget that this is an essential thing. Just like prayer, reading the scriptures are essential. So let's open up this gift, this gift that God has given us, and let's draw close to him through his inspired words. Let him ignite a greater passion for the Lord. Let him reveal to your heart the things that need to be cut away and the things that need to be strengthened. And when the enemy of the soul seeks to attack you and defeat you, use the sword of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen.